Morning. Morning. Y'all can have a seat. Uh, our scripture reading for today is Romans chapter 1, starting verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Uh, King Jesus, as we come today to gather uh, as your people for your glory, Lord Jesus, I just pray that you would lead us and guide us in the words that you have said to us, the things that you are saying to us, Lord God, uh, and that we would be people who are deeply devoted to not just the truth that is here contained, but the living in that truth and by that truth and for that truth and living for your glory with our whole aim being your glory, uh, knowing you, loving you, enjoying you, and that we know that we do this out of the freedom of the cross and the power of the resurrection. And so, Jesus, I just pray you would send us your spirit, you would guide us and lead us, Holy Spirit, uh, into truth. Help us, God. We love you, Jesus, and pray these things for your glory and for our joy in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, so here we are in the book of Romans. Uh, we are working our way through the New Testament uh, quite rapidly, in fact. Uh, we're calling this series uh, God's Word, Our Book. And as we do this, we're looking at what God has said in each of these particular books of the New Testament, what the author is saying, uh, and how that truth uh, works out in our lives uh, so that we don't, aren't just a people who know a verse or two, but we are people who understand the grander sweep of the New Testament and the grander sweep of the books of the New Testament. Uh, this has turned out to be quite a challenge, and today may be the challenge of challenges. We are in the book of Romans, one of the most uh, complex, deep, uh, and theological books in the whole of the Bible. Uh, and at the same time, we can't forget that this is a letter written by a pastor to a church. We, we can't forget that this is something that Paul wrote to actual people. And as we approach this series, we have this assumption. that This isn't just something that God said to some people a long time ago, but contained in the Scriptures are the things that God is saying to us. And that though Paul, the little a author, had a church in Rome in mind, or really, if you read chapter 16, churches in Rome in mind, God, in His foreknowledge and sovereignty, had us in mind as well. Uh, and so as we approach the book of Romans, uh, the trick is, where do you start? Um, this thing's massive. Right? I had this conversation with myself this week again and again and again. And if you know Romans, you know what I'm talking about. Do you preach it from chapter 3? Do you preach it from chapter 5? Do you preach it from chapter 8 or 9? Sovereignty, election? What do you do? How does it go? Uh, and, and what we've been doing with the series, we've been taking a, a, a particular verse, and it's kind of been our anchor verse as we work through the text. And, and today our text is chapter 1, verse 16 and seven, verses 16 and 17. Uh, Romans is so important for us to get... Uh, the Reformers understood that Romans uh, was not just the lens to read the rest of the Bible through, but a light that shines the truth of who God is and who Jesus is on the whole of the Scriptures. And so my hope is as we dig in this, you're better and better prepared to approach this very complicated book on your own, uh, which in many ways isn't actually uh, that complicated. So we're in 16. We'll start here. I'll read it one more time, and then we'll kind of just take it apart and take a walk through the book of Romans. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for, in the righteousness, uh, for the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, 
There's a couple of ways you can approach these 13 letters that Paul's written in your Bible. If you're here, it's about there. And he wrote from about there to, you know, kind of like there. He wrote that whole section. There's these 13 letters to these different churches and a few people. Now, we're doing it what's called canonically. So we're just taking it in the order that it's in the table of context of your Bible. If we were going in order of when these were written, this one was written in the 50s, and I don't mean the 1950s, I mean the 00550s, the 50s. Uh, if we took it in sort of more of a chronological order, uh, we would have started with either Galatians or First or Second Thessalonians, depending on where you land on a particular theological arm wrestling match, which letter got written first. Now, if you'd walked your way through some of these letters, First, Second Corinthians comes next, and you'd seen the life that Paul lived as this apostle running around planting churches and how different people had treated this guy for these years, uh, you would see, man, this is a guy who is unashamed of the gospel. This is a guy who's willing to take the consequences and the hits uh, um, from both sort of the Jewish community that he's from and from the Greeks and from the Romans and all these people who just kind of pile it on him again and again and again. And he stands up and says, I'm going to keep preaching the truth of Jesus. Because Jesus is who he says he is. Because Jesus is God himself who entered into human history, who died the death we all deserve, rose from the dead to save sinners from themselves, from themselves to life in God. And that truth and the preaching of that truth and the reality that you and I cannot earn the love of God but only receive it from Christ is of such value to him that his life isn't. And so here we are when he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel he doesn't just mean that he's kind of embarrassed about it. He means he's willing, as we see in the book of Acts, to have people to stand up. He gets rocks thrown at him until he's almost dead, and they drag his body out of town. What does he do? He gets up and goes back into town. Right, we live in a time and a place, and I think we've feel, we're feeling it, uh, we're feeling it in Seattle. I think we're feeling it in the world. Uh, we live in a time and a place where if you stand up and say, hi, my name is Andrew. I'm a pastor at a Bible-believing, evangelical, conservative church. They say, we would love to have you come sit in first class. No, they don't. They don't. There's a number of things they may say, and, and, and people still have the sense, well, you know, maybe kind of a, a holy person or something, so you shouldn't like mess with them. There's some, some, some feeling there. Uh, but no one's giving you cuts and lines for first class in 2016. Paul didn't get cuts in line in the 50s. We, we need to remember this as Paul writes, as we read and he, and he speaks of different people groups and the different things he's dealing with. He's a marginalized person writing to marginalized people. Don't forget it. And he's been marginalized extensively. And you and I are living in a place and a time where I think Christians have more and more shame for the gospel. It's costing more to say you're a Christian. It's costing more to say you believe the Bible. Um, we've had people in this church who've lost jobs over this. We, we've had people who've lost friends over this. We've had people who have lost for Jesus and for the gospel. So when Paul says in 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, we need to listen. We need to hear. Because we come in here, right? It's our church building, the PNA, here in Seattle, right? We're going to leave and then the ukulele players will come in and it's a ukulele hall, but right now it's a church building. We're the church and we go from here. 
on God's mission to a world that needs the message of the gospel, that needs the truth of the cross, that needs the truth of the resurrection. And if you and I are ashamed to share that truth, we are ashamed to share the truth of people who are dying all around us all the time without God, without Jesus, and without that truth. This is a very sober thing he's saying here. It cost him a lot. And it ends up costing him his life, of course. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel, this message, is greater than any shame he's experienced. Well, why? Of course, we have to understand what the gospel is that he's not ashamed of and why he's willing to take the cost. What is the gospel? I think it's best to sum it up as the manger, the cross, and the crown. The good news is the good news that God himself came and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, God among us. Uh, that God who created everything, different than a deist God or different than a panentheist or pantheist God. God's just sort of everything and it just feels nice or whatever. Yeah, it's the nice feeling I have when I'm hanging out with my friends or whatever. Really? That's, that's God? That's that's the ineffable, uh, incalculable uh, massiveness of God who made all things. Feeling in your tummy or whatever? Like, no. Uh, it's actually way better than that. God himself, Jesus Christ, comes and dwells with us in this world that we fundamentally break. Human beings are good at breaking the world. We are good at narcissism. We are good at playing survival of the fittest. We are good at playing king of the mountain. We are good at those things. Uh, we create the mess that we find ourselves, and Jesus comes into the mess that our, that our selfishness and our self-salvation and our religion and our works righteousness and all these things, all the stuff in us that, that makes us want to throw ourselves a parade when we do kind things for other people, and all the things in us that take, steal, lie, etc., etc. Classics, right? parades, and the classics, which, by the way, don't ever go out of style. You read the classics, you read Roman history, you read Greek history, and it all sounds an awful lot like everything else you read in politics in America without making any comments about anyone in particular. It's just kind of more of the same for thousands of years. And Jesus enters into more of the same. He's born in humble estate. He's born uh, as a baby. He lives a normal life, as we saw in the Gospels that we're coming out of. And you have to understand these things, or else Romans doesn't make any sense. Jesus was hungry. Jesus cried. Jesus was sad. We don't have any accounts of Jesus laughing, but I'm assuming he did. I'm assuming he did, right? He had friends. It must have been weird in the worldly sense. I don't know what it's like to be Jesus' mama lost and he's wandering around the temple and he's doing all these other things he's working miracles or whatever it's a weird life right and nobody quite figures it out until it's all over but he came and he lived and 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 the bible is so clear for us this means that god himself jesus christ understands what it is to be you and that's good news you don't have uh, he, he was made like his brothers in every way but knew no sin so that he could sympathize with us. This is Hebrews, and I know I'm skipping ahead. This is Roman Romans. Settle down. He became like us in every way, but knew no sin. So he'd be a faithful high priest to us and to you. That's a different picture of God than any other God that any other world view has. But the good news isn't just that he came and that he lived this life. 
but he died, as we'll see in Romans, for our sins. He came and died in our place for our sins. The classic hymn. I don't know who started pumping the jams, but there's a station in town now where they're singing opera gospel songs. I don't know where it came from. I don't know what it's doing in Seattle, but I was listening to something like, it's opera, and I'm like, in my place condemned he stood. I'm like, I know this song. This is weird. Maybe I'm the only one who listens to the radio, but there it is. But that great line of the great hymn, in my place condemned he stood. So God comes into the mess that we make, have made, lives here on earth with us in a humble estate, dies on the cross for our sins to make us right with God. And the great thundering message of Romans is that Jesus came to save us from our sins to life in God and there's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to get right with God, but God came and got right with you. Receive it. This is the truth of Romans. This is the gospel he's unashamed to preach, which he'll unpack for us more deeply. And the crown, because a guy who dies on a cross isn't that great or significant. The reality is he rose from the dead. He's seated ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father. That is the gospel that Jesus saves sinners. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That gospel, why? For it is the power of God for salvation. So we have to understand then, there's the framework of our house. Now let's build a house. We have to understand that the reality of the gospel is this power of salvation is saved from things and to things. Uh, if you only have saved two things, we miss the fact that we're in great need of a Savior, right? If it's just like, I get to live life with this great God who's awesome and he's my friend and stuff, we miss the fact that we need to be saved from some stuff. And he's done that saving, so he saved us from and to. And Romans will lay that out for us. Uh, just follow with me down into Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Why do we live playing survival of the fittest? Why do we live uh, uh, with a scarcity economy where I'm trying to make the biggest pile of things that I can have? This is my pile of things. This is my pile of money. This is my pile of cars or, I don't know, people downloading my blog on the internet or whatever it might be. Look, I'm successful. Look, I've won. Look, I've amassed it. For the wrath of God is revealed against heaven for all ungodliness and righteousness of men. We, as human beings, have a sense that unrighteousness is bad and that something must do something about it. We're Seattleites. We actually love the sense of justice. Wrath is the business end of God's justice. The reality that God, who knows all and sees all, doesn't sweep anything under the rug. Well, where does that come from? where does our survival of the fittest, where does our sin, where does our parade, where does it come from? It comes from the fact that we've traded the truth for a lie. Who by their ungodliness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So what he's saying here is if you look out the window, and it's great to be in a building with windows because you can see things, or at least I can see things because I'm up a couple feet, just by looking at a tree, just by looking at the way that God has created the universe, if we were without sin, we would see that and understand that there is a creator who created creation. And we would understand deep, amazing, glorious truths about that God. And I think sometimes, and I think it's Pacific Northwesters, we love to like hike 
fish, right? Well, not in Seattle. You're not supposed to see fish or hunt or anything here. But we like to get out and breathe some fresh air. We have a sense somewhere in us about a rightness that comes, a wholeness that comes with getting out into nature, right? Like we love it. I think somewhere that's deep down inside us because we have a sense that a creator created creation, but we trade that truth. In our sin, we can't see it. We trade that truth for a lie. Or else it would be plain. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. A tree is a miracle. You ever do a science experiment, this one in class, where you have a little, you, it's not styrofoam anymore. When I was a kid, it was styrofoam. They give you a styrofoam cup and a bean and some dirt and something happens. A thing grows. That's amazing. That's supposed to blow our minds. We're enlightenment thinkers, and so we have this sense, this sense of science. And I know this is not the science theology debate. We have this sense that we just have figured out all the pieces of the universe. And I'm going to put the bean in the dirt, and the bean's going to grow because the gears in the bean are going to turn, and the light and the sun and the photosynthesis, it's going to do its thing. And of course it does that because that's how the world works because I have the scientific method to prove it. Put that aside for just a moment and be five with me. You've got a styrofoam cup and some dirt and a bean in a cup and you put some light on that thing and a bean grows out of the cup? Should that, even if we have the scientific method, scientific method, no, I'll stop. Tutored four-year-olds have a song for everything. We should look at that thing and say, Bean. I put a bean seed in a cup, and not only did something come out, but it was a bean. And it's growing. And I have air to breathe. My, my body is working. We don't understand how the body works. We understand how parts of the body works. How does your mind work? Right? Descartes, alone in his kitchen, comes up with, I think, therefore I am, and that's all he's got? That's why you know you exist, Descartes? Descartes. You're thinking? Well, how are you thinking? How does the mind work? We're inventing computers that can copy us and can even beat us at chess, but man, thinking's amazing, let alone the bean in the cup. Now, we've traded the awe and the wonder of these things and just made it into one big machine in our mind. We've reimagined a mechanical instrument of all these things happening, and it's just happening because of cause and effect, and it just happens that way. God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world uh, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. We have dark hearts that reject God. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, birds and animals, creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. How can I know that it's broken? It's, it's Isaiah's kind of thing. 
So you climb up in a tree and you cut the branch down on the tree and you use some of the branch to cook your meat and you use some of the branch to make a little god you bow down and worship. And that is where you find your meaning and your purpose and identity. Are you serious? Who made the tree? You're going to bow down to a little statue you made? You're going to bow down and find your meaning and purpose and fulfillment in life from the rat race and money and fast fashion and Facebook and Twitter and how fast your car goes or how old your car is or how small your car is or how big your car is and that is going to define who you are. You drive a 1978 Suburban with giant wheels. Good for you. It's called idolatry. You take this created thing that God made and you bow down and you worship it instead of him. That's idolatry. And we need to be saved from it. Uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 6. He will render each, according to, each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, trying to get on top of that king of the mountain dogpile, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury, the business end of God's justice. We want the business ends of, God, of God's justice for everybody. You, you, know, you name a dictator uh, of history, and we want God to deal with them. You want to deal with your white lies or, or your theft or your stealing or, or your idolatry or whatever it is. We just want God to cut us a break. Uh, you know, totalitarian dictator of present or past, wrath. You and me, cut me a break. They're this bad. I'm not that bad. I want them to pay. I don't want to pay. There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek. That's a mirrorism. It's a way of saying everybody. And we'll kind of talk about that in a second, by the way. But glory and honor and peace. Oh, this is the punchline. I'm going to keep reading, but this is the punchline. This is the saved two thing. The Jew first and the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and the Greek, for God shows no partiality. The grand crescendo of what we are saved from, chapter 3, verse 9, says this. I just kind of scoot over. What then? Are we Jews? So Paul's Jewish, by the way. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. Now he's, we're going to talk about the law and the non-law thing in a second, but we'll get there. Not at all, for we have already changed that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous. This is everybody, right? None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. It keeps going. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the state of things outside of the gospel. I, I remember when I got saved, the feeling I had when I'm sitting in my parents' living room reading Matthew chapter 5, and the depth and the reality of this was washing over me. And I had this sense of, Yep, I have sinned against God. I have sinned against people. I have done wrong to God. I have done wrong to people. What do I do? What do I do? 
Just keep reading, to be honest with you, whether you're in Matthew chapter 5 or if you're here in Romans 3.21. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So what he's talking about is the old covenant law. God in his grace and mercy tells the people in Sinai, I will be your God and you will be my people if you walk in my ways. And this is what it looks like to walk in my ways. And by the way, here's the mechanism. It's called sacrifice. When you don't walk in my ways, there's actually a mechanism to deal with the fact that you've sinned against God, period. God in his grace and mercy has done this. Okay. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. Why is that? Two things. Jesus and Jesus. Jesus came and fulfilled the law. Remember the manger thing? That life that he lived? He came and lived the life in my place that I was supposed to live, and he fulfilled the law. What's not been restated in the New Testament is fulfilled. It's still Scripture. We still hold to the Old Testament. We still read it. We still know it's from God. We know it's built from God. But the way that God relates to you and I fundamentally changed when Jesus came and walked upon the earth. Why? Well, God came and walked upon the earth. Of course it fundamentally changed. You read the Old Testament, they're just waiting for it. Something's going to change. Something's going to happen. Something big is coming. What's it going to be? And then the baby comes. We looked at this in the Gospels. Why John says, are you the one we should? Are you the guy or should we look for another one? Because this doesn't seem like the it thing that's coming, the it thing that is happening. But Paul says, no, 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 no. It's happened. It's come. So he came and lived the life we were supposed to live, but he's also the final sacrifice for sin. Our sin, the good things we do for the wrong reasons and the wrong things we do against God, are against God. God is infinitely valuable, infinitely beautiful, infinite holy, infinitely wonderful, and any sin against God is therefore an infinite sin. So God in his grace and mercy, infinite God, came and died on the cross for my infinite sin so that I could be forgiven by an infinitely wonderful, infinitely kind, infinitely gracious God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. So it's not about following the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The law, the first five books of your Bible, typically capital L, law here. First five books, the prophets, the prophets, and there's a third one, the katavim, the writings. Uh, But when he says the law and the prophet, he means that first 78% of our Bible is pointing forward to the grace and mercy of God in the person of Jesus Christ. It's another mirrorism. He likes those, by the way. For the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Why does it have to be faith? For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? I stand up here three feet up. So you can see me and the lights hit me and I can see the trees and make sermon illustrations out of them. I've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So have you. And the answer for my problem is the same as yours, whether you know him today or you don't. The same answer for the same problem, and his name is Jesus. That God himself crossed the gap that I couldn't cross and came and died in my place to make me right with God so that God looks at my infinite sin, infinite. Try explaining infinite to like a five or six-year-old. They catch on the words, what does infinite mean? Like forever, ever, 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 ever. Well, what else does it mean? You know, like forever, ever, ever, ever. You run out of words trying to describe the bigness 
and the gravity and the weight of both our sin against Christ and Christ's grace extended to us through his cross. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by grace as a gift. Uh, as Reformation people, as kind of Protestanty kind of uh, lovers of guys like John Calvin and Martin Luther, sometimes we quote uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we miss that there's a comma, not there in Greek, because they don't have commas in Greek, but there's a comma right after 23 that says, and are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We've got a problem, and Jesus solves it. And the reason the law doesn't work anymore is because that grace mechanism of sacrifice has been taken out on the one true sacrifice, Jesus, who infinitely pays the price for our sins and does away for the need for sacrifice. Why are we not freaking out? The temple got torn down in 70, again, not 1970, 70 AD. Why do we not freak out about that as modern Christians by mo or modern people of God in 70? Why were they not freaking out about it? Because they knew that the one true sacrifice had come and paid the price for sin on Golgotha decades prior. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Every world system, whether it's training your body uh, for consciousness through yoga or meditation or, or any uh, sort of half-hearted attempt to mimic Christianity is all about you doing things to get you right with God. This is a story about God. This is the history, the reality of God in your life. You are helpless apart from God, and God came and saved you from yourself to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier. Business end of God's justice is his wrath. It sweeps nothing under the rug. For us to be Christians, to be right with God, nothing was swept under the rug, but all that business end of God's justice was poured out on Jesus on the cross so that you and I can be fully right as a propitiation for sin to God. To be received by what? Romans chapter 5, verse 6 says this. For while we were still weak, we're not picked because you were awesome. We're not picked because you meditated your way or thought deep thoughts about God or sought after him or whatever. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's you and me. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. It takes a lot of guts to lay your life down for somebody else. And usually, when we talk about the dictator scale, people don't tend to lay their lives down for the totalitarian dictator, right? They want him to get the business end of the justice. But man, people do lay their lives down kids or their friends or whatever it might be. And Jesus says there's no greater love than that, in fact. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, while you were still a rebel against God, while you were still an enemy of God, Jesus died on the cross for you. 
He didn't wait until you cleaned your life up and put on your Sunday best and came to church and bought a Bible and you know, started reading R.C. Sproul books. He's not waiting to see how you're going to turn out. He's not giving you a probationary period as a Christian for a couple of years and seeing how it works out and if we're going to hire you on full time. No, while you were still a miscreant, while you were still rebelling against him, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. All grace. It's all a gift. You can't earn any of it. Christ died for us. Since therefore we now have been justified, made fully right by God, by his blood, much more than shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God, the business end of God's justice. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You and I are right with God. Why is he unashamed of the gospel? Not just because our sins are paid, but that we are now friends with God. We are the children of God. We have a relationship with God who made the trees and the beans coming out of the cups and the things. Right? We have that in full force with Jesus, and we have the durable promise of his word to back it up. This isn't just true of a church that Paul's writing to uh, in the 50s. This is true of you now because of the blood of Jesus. You are a child of God. You are made right with God. Praise be to God. Not because you said the right thing or did the right thing, but because Jesus said and did the right thing. And this is the gospel. This is the gospel. Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 1. Let us not ever forget that we're saved from and to. There is therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? The gospel. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are a Christian, if you belong to him, all of your sin, not just the sins you committed before you met him, but everything after is paid for by his cross. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. It's for freedom. I'm skipping to Galatians, I know. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Our lives as Christians should be marked with joy and rejoicing and love and kindness and sacrifice, sacrificial love for each other because we've already received everything in Christ. Back to Romans chapter 1. For everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. The Jews were the set-apart people of God. Jesus was Jewish. Paul was Jewish. All the apostles were Jewish, right? He was born in Bethlehem, which is in Judea, which used to be called Israel. And then there were some wars, and things go really poorly. And then it was Judah, but I digress. Okay, go with me to Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 1. I know we skip around a lot because I'm trying to cover the whole book so that it's ours, right? Verse 1 says, I asked then, has God rejected his people? So here's the deal. God's people rejected, many of God's people, I should say, many of the Jews rejected Jesus. Right? They rejected Jesus. They don't want Jesus. They don't want what he has to offer. And they lean on the tradition. I'll unpack that in a second. I asked then, has God rejected his people? By no means. Remember, he's full of grace and mercy. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. Yes, a bunch of us 
and he'll see, he really associates us, right? A bunch of us did reject the Messiah that the first 78% of the Bible kept talking about. Yes, we did reject him. We didn't want him. But a number, uh, he gives us pedigree here, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says about Elijah, who he appeals to, uh, to God against Israel? Now, if you know your Old Testament, this is one of our favorites. Uh, Elijah has a, a sacrifice off. You don't know what the right verb there is. The prophets of Baal build their sacrifice thing, and he builds his sacrifice thing. And then he says, okay, you guys dance around for a while, and if you're God's God, then have him light that thing on fire. And they do, and they sweat, and they do all this stuff, and nothing happens, and he tells a couple jokes at them while he's uh, standing there, and he makes fun of them, and they're God for a while, uh, of the nature of which I will not repeat here at this time and place. And he has him dump a bunch of water on his sacrifice, and he prays to God, and he lights it up. Now, then Elijah does the most human thing ever. He runs up on the hills and says, they're going to get me. God does this mighty work and this mighty deed, and when they come after him, those who love the idols, they think, he thinks they're going to get me. So God moves, he has faith, and God moves and does this faithful thing, and his next response is, what are we going to do, God? Have you ever had this? He moves, and you repent, and the sin's washed away, or, 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 or the thing happens, or, or whatever. The obstacle in life gets blown away by the sovereign hand of God, and the very next day you're like, what are we going to do? It's too big for you, God. And God says to Elijah, come on, dude. He doesn't say that at all. It's a remix. Uh, he does say, however, I've saved 7,000 who have not bowed a knee to the Baals, B-A-apostrophe-A-L, which pronounces weird in English, which you pronounce weird in English, Baal. Uh, do you not know what the scripture says, Elijah, who appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, which they did. They have demolished your altars, which they did. And I am alone left, and they are seeking my life. But what does God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed a knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now what's happened is, Jesus comes and everything changes. And they say, we like it the way it is. And so Jesus comes and is the final sacrifice. They say, no, we like the tradition. We like the stuff. He says, the temple's gone. The, the stuff is old. That was the old way I related to you. I've brought a new way, and he's the final sacrifice. And so it's empty now. And so the mechanism that they had to deal with the wrongdoing, sacrifice, is gone. They need Jesus. And what they ultimately say, we like tradition better than God, and so we'll go with tradition, which doesn't work out because Jesus is Messiah. Now, Paul then does this crazy thing and takes it to the barbarians like us. I don't know if you knew this morning when we were a barbarian, but you are. Uh, of course, unless you were born in a Jewish household or maybe a Messianic household, depending on your background. Those are few and far between. You and I are the people that the Bible sees as outside the camp. You, you and I are the barbarians. You and I are the ones who are not connected to this wonderful family of Abraham and this wonderful story. And you and I are the ones that Jesus, along with God's people, he came to save and rescue. He's 
accenting it one more time. That's why it's the Jews first, so it's them first, and the Gentiles also. That's why Paul is going out to us. And the thing that is happening right now in 2016 is beyond the imagination of the average Christian in the first century, let alone the average Jew living, uh, you know, 100 years before that. They're destitute alone. The Maccabees have lost. The Romans are here. And everyone's just sitting around saying, is this thing that is God's people even going to survive? in, you know, 60 B.C. when Herod and this weird, weird, weird Shakespearean family are in charge of the land. And all of a sudden, here's the hope. Jesus. Not only that, but God spreads this truth and the reality of God and welcomes us into his family to the ends of the earth. Which Seattle, by the way, is about the ends of the earth. Relatively speaking. For in the righteousness, for the righteousness, for in it, that's the gospel, it, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As is written in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith. I think Habakkuk was looking forward to this time in this place where you and I weren't going to the temple because there was a final sacrifice and we were living by faith. In God. So from faith, for faith. Funny prepositions, right? Words, prepositions. Now, it's a word that relates another word to another word. From, for. From what, for what, right? From what? What does he mean by for faith? For in it, that's the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, from the gospel. I think that from faith is from our life. That's how you become a Christian. How do I become a Christian? Faith. Not works. Not anything you do to earn God's love, but from faith. How do I live as a Christian? For faith. Wait a second. The way I become a Christian is faith, not works. That's right. You become a Christian by coming to know who God is in his grace and mercy. Well, then how do I do all the Christian-y type stuff? How do I, what do I do? Believe. We live in response to Jesus and what he's done for us. We live in response to his cross. And because we're living in response to that reality, that's why we pray. That's why we live. That's why we gather. That's why we love. That's why we serve. It's all in worshipful response to Jesus and everything he's done. And we are so quick to click and downshift into works. Okay, yeah, 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 I know I'm saved by faith, but i got to do something to earn God's love this week. I did that thing last Tuesday that was really not cool. And so I'm going to try really, really hard not to do that thing anymore so that God will like me, because I don't think God likes it when I do the thing that I did last Tuesday. And I did it last Wednesday, last Thursday, and last Friday, but I am trying really, really, really hard not to do that thing anymore. That's not from faith, that's from works. Now, that doesn't mean we don't repent, we don't obey. That's not what I'm saying at all. But we come in weakness to God and his grace and his mercy. And instead of doing the white knuckling and the spiritual push-ups, we live in faith and by faith, for faith and from faith in God. I don't earn God's love. God's love's poured out on me. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Our lives are marked 
by an utter and complete dependence on Jesus and his Holy Spirit uh, for the glory of God the Father. And again, we're so quick to downshift into works and downshift into self-dependence and downshift into self-salvation, downshift into self-righteousness. The reason I'm a Christian is because I did a good thing. I did the right things this week. That's why I'm a Christian, right? I got up every morning and read my Bible just like I'm supposed to. I, I, I didn't cuss at anybody. I didn't flash the universal sign of disapproval at anybody. I did everything right so God owes me. That's not the gospel. Don't flash the universal sign of disapproval, people, because God's forgiven you. You go to his word because you want to hear from him. You pray to him because you want to talk to him. Because you have full and unfettered access to God. Because there's therefore no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we go to God with open arms who's taking care of all of our sin and made us completely right with God for a, a life of worship and joy. As is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Faith, from faith are the means and for faith uh, is the way. And so th this righteous shall live by faith. Those who are right with God live marked by this life of faith. So what do we do with all this? How does he, how does he deal with this? So Romans chapter 10 verse 8 says this. Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 8, says this then. The word is near you, in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, made right with God. And with the mouth one, mouth one confesses and is saved. And we receive that grace and mercy. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. And all the Jews have said that. You're not circumcised, and you're not making sacrifice, and you're not doing the stuff. He says, no, it's not about the stuff. It's about faith, which it always was, by the way. The stuff used to be the reflection of that faith. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, then Paul... What do I do with the rest of my life? Because it doesn't sound like I do anything to get into this thing. Are you following me here? This is the Christian question. This is the life question of the Christian. What do I do then with the rest of my life? Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1. You'll see that Paul does this, by the way, as we work through these 13 letters. He's going to do this thing. 13 times. This is the gospel. This is how we live. Okay. So what do we do then? Now, now note how this is different than every other world system, every other religion, every other spirituality. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. How did it get holy and acceptable to God? The blood of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's how. Okay. So I'm living in the reality that he's already purchased for me, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I live my life taking off, as he's going to say, I'm cheating again. 
Corinthians. Taking off the old man, putting on the new. I'm made new and I'm here on earth and it turns out my transformation is not yet total. But I'm living in the reality of the cross of Jesus Christ, taking off that old guy and putting on that new guy every day. Which I already am. We're already seated with Christ. Therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I almost preached all of Romans 8 today. But then I remembered we shouldn't do that. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to measure of faith God has assigned. And he just begins to unpack for us what it is to respond then as Christians to Jesus. We are a simple church for simple reasons. We're not trying to build something big and make a bunch of programs. We're trying to be a people who continue to rededicate every moment of every day our life to a response to the joy and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ and to live in a worshipful response. That is our point. That is our job, is to enjoy Jesus for His glory. Believe Him, not just to check off the box, but to believe Him in all we do. We're going to transition to more worship, more singing. We're going to really, maybe to say it better, we're going to transition from worshiping God as we read His Word and preach the sermon to worshiping God as we sing songs to Jesus. Um, on the table up here, we have uh, communion, Eucharist, or whatever you want to call it. Not whatever you want to call it, but we have communion. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, He instituted this, this we do in the remembrance of Jesus and his cross. This is for Christian people only, those who are associated with Christ, because this is our public proclamation of his death on the cross for our sin that marks us out as his people. And so logistically, we take, there's gluten-free bread on the far side, regular bread in the middle, wine and juice for the offer, uh, um, wine and juice, uh, according to your conscience, in the basket for the offering. We take the bread or the cracker and we dip it in the juice. And when we do this, we do this in remembrance of him who died for our sins to make us right with God. So when we take this, we take this as a celebration. As Paul commanded us in Corinthians, we consider our sin before we come to this cup and we approach this cup in a worthy manner. But we do that by considering what Jesus has paid for and turning from our sin into Jesus in repentance. And then we come up and take this. We take this as a celebration as forgiven people who've been bought by the blood of the Lamb. And so we come up and we take this when we're ready and we stand up and we sing songs to our risen Savior and worship of Him. Please pray with me. King Jesus, we do love you. We praise you. And I pray that our lives would be a reflection of the gospel that we aren't ashamed of. I pray that our lives would be a reflection of the reality that you have died in our place for our sins to make us right with yourself. I pray that, Lord, you would liberate us from any, any kind of works righteousness, any sense of doing the right thing to be right with you or to be right in the world, to be right with others, but that we would receive your grace and mercy because you are the righteous one who made us righteous. I pray we would do that every day and that we would seek your face every day. We'd seek your forgiveness and to live in that freedom every day. I pray that we'd be unashamed of this message as we carry it to the city and that people would be liberated by the truth of your cross and the truth of your resurrection. Jesus, we love you and pray these things for your glory and for our joy in your name. Jesus Christ, amen.